And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Hey everyone. Welcome back. To the to the newest episode of Art House Drive-In. Art House uh, Drive-In. Oh, we weren't <laughs> gonna do that in sync. The the illustrious film podcast from Split Tooth Media where we're taking a taking a little galactic stroll through uh avant garde and experimental film. Um I'm I'm Robert, uh and I'm with always my, my buddy T. That's me. Um and today uh we're coming at you with a little bit more of an experimental film, that being a film within a film. So, yeah. um Rob, if I if you had to pick one movie where you could just be a fly on the wall. Uh, what would you pick? Oh, Jiminy Crickets. Oh, man. I think it would have to be a Cassavetes film because his style of directing is sort of legendary. I would love to see how he worked. Um, or... I, can I say a, a plan B answer yeah, too? Yeah, of course, of course. I would, I would also love to see Sue Friedrich at work because how she described making Sink or Swim um, was very like spontaneous, and I would love to see like the the famous story of her like going on the roller coaster um, and facing her fears while embodying mm-hmm. the fears of her childhood, and her getting off the roller coaster and then going back on because she actually enjoyed it as an adult. I would love right. to be there for those like very spontaneous lovely moments you know now cassavetes that was like the eight hour one right no that's bellatar ah no 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 no, no. sorry yeah all all the all the film majors out there are going to be yelling at me (laughs) i think i think there's some overlap between cassavetes and bellatar fans so you're not too far off but okay fair enough fair enough see it's funny we went in very different directions with this um what would be for you well I was thinking it would be really funny to be on the set of a movie that was like almost entirely CGI, <laughs> uh, just so I could see uh, all these actors and actresses just held up by wires <laughs> and uh. trying to make something look believable. So the one that uh. came to mind was actually um, Spy Kids Three. Whoa! Yeah, for a deep Whoa. cut. <laughs> Um, Your I think, answer blew mine out of the water. I think that was the one where they had the giant robots, um, and they were like in a video game or something. I think watching them try to do like action sequences in front of a green screen, just like tri- like tripping over themselves, would be hilarious. Your answer killed my answer. That's such a better answer than mine. <laughs> You're in it more for the directors. I'm in it more for the comedy. <laughs> Wasn't George Lopez in Spy Kids 3? Wasn't he the villain oh, in Spy Kids yeah, 3? Th- 
I think he was. It was either that or you might be thinking of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. I think he could have oh. been the villain for that one too. I'm I'm thinking of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. I don't know what I'm saying. Mixing up those films. What am I doing as, a, by the as same, a cinephile? It was made by the same production group, right? I mean, it looks like it. They look like the exact same. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. But <laughs> that's interesting. Revoke my I, cinephile I'm, I'm gl- card. I'm glad that we have very different responses to that. So that's what makes this whole thing interesting. <laughs> I agree. And today <laughs> we're we're covering a film that is very unlike Spy Kids Three or Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Um, we're covering Symbio Psycho Taxoplasm Take One. Uh, Try saying that shot five times in ni- fast. Shot in 1968, released in 1971 from uh, esteemed legendary director William Greaves. Um, how did you feel about this film, T? So I very much enjoyed the concept. Um, again, kind of for the comedy's sake. Uh, being able to see all these little things that are going wrong on a film set, uh, seeing them filming in this very public space and having to deal with actual living people wandering in and out of uh, of their takes. And also, I think my favorite part was seeing the actors in between sets uh, or in between takes. It was just like, you would see them in character, and then a second later they'd be like, yeah, something like that? No? Ah, uh, yeah, shit. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love those parts too. And for for people at home, this is a film uh within a film within a film. So you have a film crew filming a film crew making a film. The first so, inception, if you will. Oh, the first way before inception. And uh, this is from William Greaves, who is a very prolific documentary filmmaker. Um, he worked on films of all kinds. He's like a true blue from uh, from the, the bottom of the set to the top, from director to PA. I'm sure he had every job on a film set at one point. Got uh, somebody coffee once, and then he has someone getting coffee for him. For sure. I mean, th- there's, there's no one better to make a film about filmmaking than William Greaves. And... Um, I chose this film because I found it sort of recently. Um, I was researching for my interview with Sue Friedrich, and one of her most recent projects that she made was actually revamping the WilliamGreaves.com, you can find it at WilliamGreaves.com, website, uh, because uh, she wants more people to know about this amazing man's career. And um, she really took it upon herself to create like an amazing website design just devoted to his incredible filmography and and history and you know i actually i just pulled up that because i didn't look at his website before and i gotta say it looks pretty cool it's got all of his movies in uh one easy to find place got a nice little bio it's incredible i'm enjoying this uh she she did did sue friedrich make this website herself I believe so. I'm sure she had a little help here and there. I'm not sure if she still runs it or, but, but she spurred on the project of making it. I think she like learned the coding and did it all of herself um, as well. Yeah, you can find more info on that process in the interview that I made with her because she talked about it at length. And um, funny fact too, Symbio actually got put in the National Film Registry at, of Congress the same year that Sink or Swim did, which hey. is kind of coincidental, which is cool. Um, or is it a coincidence? 
or is it? Well, they're both amazing, incredible films, so maybe not a coincidence. But I think today we're usually like analysis, 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 do quick on history. We're going to take a little bit more time to do the history portion because I think if you're like a hardcore, you know, film person, you know who William Greaves is. Um, But uh, if you're not like his, he's not as well known as like sort of some of the big directors, but he should be. So I really want to spend some time talking about why he's so important. And Um, I've barely learned anything about him. So a little bit of a background would be excellent for myself as well. So, so William Greaves, born in 1926 and died pretty recently in, in 2014. Um, he first came on the scene as a creative, as a songwriter, who had a lot of um, hit songs being played on the radio. And he was an actor uh, and dancer on Broadway as well. So, like, before filmmaking, he was already, like, a pretty successful creative. And then... In 1948, he was accepted into the Actors Studio, which is this like sort of um, mythical, legendary school where he studied under people like Daniel Mann and uh, Elia Kazan. I don't know if that's pronounced, but Lee, I know Lee Strasberg how to pronounce that because he's a very famous acting coach. That's um, uh, the method actor guy. Yeah. So Strasberg was sort of famous um, for method acting, like one of the the people who developed that. Okay. Yeah. I, from the like two acting courses that i took in college uh his name seemed familiar yeah and uh he also acted in a lot of sort of independent films Mm. but there was a certain point where he wanted to shift from being in front of the camera to behind the camera um and i want to read some of his quotes about that because i think it's incredibly important to realize i'll only um, let you pick two (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because it's it's mainly about race. Like we haven't said it before, but he's a black filmmaker working mm-hmm. in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, and he said, um, quote, I think probably the central reason why I got involved in film production in general and a documentary production in particular was that I had a very good fortune of studying African history. Um, that wasn't something most black Americans familiar with back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and he goes on to say, like, he had wonderful teachers like William uh, Leo Hansberry, who was a professor at Howard. Um, and he was very outraged that the American uh, education system didn't cover African-American history like they covered, you know, white history and things like that. Like he saw the disparity. He said this was a very disturbing experience to me. Um, and I said to myself, I should be on the other side of the camera. I should not be in front of the camera acting and playing various roles and speaking lines of various authors. Um, why don't I get into the production area and tell the truth about people of color? So like his So a way journey, to tell his story more. Yeah, a way to tell his story and the story that was barred from um, the American educational system or American culture in That's general. That's pretty cool. It, he's a pioneer in the in the greatest sense of the word and after that unfortunately because it was the 40s and 50s um or i guess late 40s and 50s um he was unable to break through the racial barriers in the film industry um that were so prevalent at the time so he actually went to canada um and trained at the national film board of canada and i am a big fan of the national film board of canada because they gave people like norman mclaren and william greaves um, the breadth to do a lot of very cool things. Like some of my favorite films are made um, with the support of National Film Board of Canada. Hmm. And sometimes when I watch an experimental film, and at the beginning I see that little logo, I'm like, of course they made this film because they're they're the bomb. Sponsor us, 
um, National Film Board of Canada, please. Uh, just so just support us. I am like a genuine fan. That's not even a shill. But uh, so he worked from the bottom up. So he like honed his craft to the point where he was like the chief editor of Unit B and was producing um, documentaries in North America before coming back to the American film industry um, and uh, really sort of paving the way for a lot of filmmakers to becoming just like an incredibly prolific documentarian. Um, And he was actually uh, was awarded an Emmy for his work as executive producer in NET's pioneering television series, Black Journal, and the first black produced series to be nationally broadcast on American television. Oh, and, okay, you know, very cool. I might have to uh, check that out. For sure. And all of his work has to do with sort of like important people in African-American history. So I'll, I'll talk about some of his films now because I could go on and on. The guy has an incredibly press, like, impressive career. Well, um, to, just to keep us on schedule, you know, why don't you just give us uh, give us like one really good example that, that speaks to you. So, uh, he made, uh, some films about Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fight that are really interesting, but I would say the one that I want to watch the most is the Malcolm X nationalist or humanist film, or, you know, I'm going to say a bunch rapid fire, Booker T. Washington, the life and legacy, Frederick Douglass in American life, Malcolm X nationalist or humanist, um, the voice of La Raza, which I'm sort of tied to from a lot of the research from a documentary that I worked on. Sisterhood um, of the traveling pants. <laughs> oh, oh! If he made that movie, he would have made it the greatest movie of all time, like for sure. It isn't um, already. Oh, uh, <laughs> are you the what? You're are you revealing to me now that you're a super fan of Sister of the Traveling Pants? No comment. Is this the day? <laughs> Is this the day that I know that I learned that? Uh, I plead the but fifth. He, <laughs> but he's he's super prolific. Go on WilliamGreaves.com and just take a, a ride um, on his incredible career. And this will bring us to Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One, which was released in 1971 and shot in 1968. Um, it is an experimental documentary film that is grounded in the idea of um, revealing the artifice of filmmaking and creating these pockets of uncertainty. So what he wanted to do with making this film that he, you know, he himself says is that he was very dissatisfied with Hollywood acting, um, him saying that as a former actor or still an actor. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to try and bring different spaces out with this film that would maybe lead to something that's more, quote, you know, real, quote, I mean, authentic. I would argue that, like that any time that you're filming somebody who's not acting, you're looking at something fairly authentic. But I, I do see where right. he's coming from. Yeah, and we'll and we'll dive into all that in the analysis. That's just the t- that's you know just the taste. But uh, T, let let us know what actually hip happens in the film. Right on, I will. Um, but first things first. Uh, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm take one. 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 Just had to prove that I could do it. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was really impressive. Yeah, I, I honestly didn't think I could do it. <laughs> That's a great vocal exercise. Yeah, uh, all, all you budding actors and actresses out there, if you really want to give your vocal cords a workout, just say the go. title of this film over and over. But Symbiopsychotaxoplasm Take One uh, is a film within a film about filming. 
Uh, so you have one scene that is going on the entire time about uh, a husband and a wife who are fighting because the wife believes the man to be a homosexual. And it's uh, this scene is filmed using a bunch of different actors and actresses uh, in different styles, uh, in different settings. Um, it's more of a test scene, but the actual film is you have the camera that's filming this scene, but then you also have a camera that's filming the cameraman. But then you also have a camera that's filming uh, William Greaves and the rest of the crew as they're filming this cameraman who's filming this camera crew who's filming this scene. Um, so you really get to see every aspect of this film, except for the guy who's filming the camera guy who's filming the camera guy who's filming the scene. <gasps> He's a mystery. But so you get to see... Uh, the actors in between takes as they're kind of like going over notes and seeing what worked and what didn't you get to see uh, Camera crews dealing with the problems that they have to that they face on sets like oh shoot my camera's almost out of film uh, My microphone's not working technical difficulties you get pedestrians who want their shot at stardom So they jump in and try to introduce <laughs> themselves you have a policeman on a, on a horse who's trying to see your permit um, You know that very common thing and if that weren't enough, you also get kind of a behind-the-scenes take of the, the entire crew, minus William Greaves, discussing whether or not William Greaves has any idea of what he's doing. So you, you get to see a kind of cut-down, like, highlights reel of the filming of this scene, rather than a traditional, uh, a traditional story with, uh, or a traditional film with a plot, a story characters etc which makes for an interesting an interesting time yeah and what i wanted to start with first um is t how did you feel about a the structure of structurelessness that william greaves wanted to create with this film so you're just asking like how I felt about a film without a plot? Well, I think what I'm asking is that um, his style of direction is very strange, right? Like his style of direction is not really to direct. It's to create these spaces where random things can happen. Mm. And that is not how people direct films. Uh, That's actually at one point where the crew was like, he doesn't know how to direct. It's because he's trying to do the antithesis of direction. You know. I see, I see. Um, yes, I believe that the academics describe that style as loosey-goosey. <laughs> That's the technical term. Yeah. I was fine with it. Um, I have never been on a film set before, so <laughs> I, I don't really know exactly what the right way to do these things are. But I, I see what the crew meant. While he's going around and giving the actors directions... He's telling them kind of like where to go and where to be, but he really isn't telling them, hey, this was great, but maybe a little less of that. He's really just kind of trying to get them to do it differently each time, mm -hmm. whether or not it's good or bad. Um, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, I think for what he's going for, I mean, he picked the right way to do it. Yeah, and um, one of my favorite quotes from him in the film where he's actually most explicit, like he's... He's vague on purpose, and one of the crew says that as a negative, but that's he's trying to be vague to put everyone in this like space of uncertainty 
where maybe they could just act um, viscerally or they act on instinct. But um, one of my favorite quotes from him is uh, he wants the crew to function in terms of the reality of the moment. Um, and he's training all of the people who are filming this to film within that reality. Um, and he hopes that the actors will be submerged in that as well. And he'll get something interesting. Like you're talking about with like the different takes and the different reactions, different styles. Right. Um, as long as he's, as long as he's switching it up each time, you're not just seeing a carbon copy of the take that came before it. You're seeing one where, uh, the lead actor, I think he said like, should I play this more closeted or more straight? And yeah. he and he doesn't really give an answer. And he's like, ah, I know what I'm going to do. And he does something completely yeah. different. Yeah, he just wants every take to shake it up. He wants to see what happens, um, which is kind of inspiring, at least to me, um, because I think with filmmaking, people are always trying for this like defined vision. Like that's um, We talked about auteur theory a long time ago. I think oh, in the boy. Renoir, the rules of the game. Yeah, episode. but it had to have been uh, Renoir. Yeah, and uh, people sort of laud directors like him and the others in the theory that they're able to capture this vision, wrestle with it, and and make it very defined. It's funny because this film is a very defined vision of like uncertainty, right? Like that's the interesting part. It's the he wants that uncertainty, but it's an uncertain vision. Like it's even hard to talk to talk about in that way. Yeah, it sounds like. An oxymoron. It gets us talking in circles. And that's why I think that if we get too deep in it, we're going to stop saying anything. (laughs) Um, And so we should really watch ourselves while we're doing that. Agreed. Yeah. And so how did you feel about the film within a film within a film method too? not just like the structure of the film, but the actual act of um, filming the filming process? Like, did you find it um, to be interesting? I'd say. I did. I did. Yeah. Um, mostly because this is something that I don't have any exposure to normally. Um, I I have friends who work as like uh, sound crews uh, for music videos, for photo shoots, um, for movies and films, but I have no experience with it. And so, even if it is a little outdated, getting a peek behind the curtains was actually a really fun experience. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I will say about this, though, and this is something that I've mentioned um, earlier as well, mm-hmm. is I don't think that this is something that can be recreated. Which, I mean, when we were talking before, uh, you had mentioned, like, have you ever seen something like this before? And I said, of course not. Um, but I think part of that is because now it's been done, what's the point of doing this again? You're, you would be creating an original moment by doing it again, yes, but by recreating this randomness, you're not doing something original, which sounds convoluted, and it kind of is. Yeah. Well, this is a very like convoluted film, so it's like I think that fits in with the with the theme too. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny when you talk about sort of like the film set aspect. Um, this is a non-narrative film, of course. It's nonfiction, mm-hmm. but. If you thought about this like a narrative, it would be filled with people going slate, 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 doing sound syncs. Like this, they say slate like a thousand times. It would be filled with, uh, uh, do you have a full magazine? Like, is your camera out of film? But like, uh, uh, what's up with that sound? Why does it sound like shit? Get <laughs> that like, jogger out of here. Yeah, and it's like the glamour of filmmaking is just completely stripped away 
through a series of very technical aspects of of making a film which i find interesting and like he said specifically that he wanted to shy away from the hollywood filmmaking style which if you see like singing in the rain or something like that um the filmmaking process although it's like sort of revealed in that is still like glossy and fun and glamorous yeah no Um, it's gene kelly for god's sakes you know it's a learning experience i'm fine with this i want to know what it's like behind the scenes yeah 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 and um what i find interesting too is um William Greaves, like his part to play in the film is so interesting because he's like, to me, when I watch this, he's like this visionary artist that's at the center of like trying to corral this tornado of all of these different things happening. Oh, is your film full of, uh, full of film or (laughs) film full of film? Is your camera full of film? How much film does your film have? (laughs) Yeah. I got to take care of that. Is your refrigerator running? Yeah. At the end, near the end of the film, he's like, uh, the guy's like oh i'm picking up the cops on the microphone and he like he picks up the headphones and listens at it and he's like no he's picking up the walkie-talkie that guy he's like constantly putting out all of these fires <laughs> with, and trying but at to, the like, same control. time he's sort of starting them too yeah that's what i love about it he's like swashbuckling in this film and he has such a presence to him he has such charisma it but, does um, seem at some points that he's not listening to any of the people around him maybe that's yeah. a directorial thing maybe that's him just trying to cause like a mild amount of discord yeah, uh, yeah i couldn't say and i i really wouldn't even like to conjecture on that my one of my favorite moments where he seems to be sowing discord is uh when he asks the actors to sing their lines uh <laughs> near the end of the film which is so funny because he knows how much it sucks I looked away for a second and I came back to that with zero explanation. (laughs) I was like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. I even think he, he says it himself. He's like, Oh, it feels so contrived and stupid. And, um, his crew is like, then why do it? If like, what, what are you doing? And he's just like, I don't know. I wanted to try it. Like he's so playful too. In these moments, like he's just like, sing your lines. I want to see what happens. Um, and you know, not being not a fan of musicals too, that kind of gave me some satisfaction. Being because I always find musicals to feel kind of contrived, singing lines and stuff. And you know, it really came out then, like how contrived that could feel. I'm not shitting on the whole musical genre, right? But, right. Yeah. And as someone who actually enjoys musical musicals yeah. quite a bit, I'll just chime in for just one second. I agree that when you have a musical number coming out of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. It's yeah. so horrible. It, it's horrible. just so cringy. Like those, uh, like TV shows that have a musical episode, I can't yeah. stand them. But Me when either. you're a musical from start to finish, I think that's a different story because you've yeah. you've explained the medium that you're going to be in, and you're sticking with it. That's yeah, fine. Definitely. Hamilton is awesome. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> that's that's one of the through lines of these episodes, unfortunately or fortunately. But uh, <laughs> so so one of the the keynotes of this film that I wanted to hear your take on is how did you feel that the different actors saying the same lines sort of added to the film? Cause we see like four different sets of actors. I want to say saying the same lines. Like how did you feel that experience differed from scene to scene? Um, I think it made it more interesting. Uh, if anything, I wish that they hadn't stuck with uh, for the majority of the film, you do see the same two actors. I think they were the worst of the bunch. Which might have been on purpose. Yeah. Um, but I liked that they showed that they were mixing up the bones of what this film within a film within a film was about. 
Like, yeah. they're really showing, like, what the actors are doing here isn't important. Mm-hmm. It's more in the delivery of it and how it affects the crew. Yeah. Well, for me, it's I get what you're saying. I think this is what you're saying, where it's like um, everyone is working with the same lines. They're working with the same scenario. Uh, they're working with the same characters. But all of those things come out in a completely different way when there's a different person doing them, mm-hmm. right? So it's like you can't just... Uh, take one actor actress and shove them in a scene and it's going to be the exact same as someone else. He's really showing that like it's the people reading the lines and doing these things that add the performance to them. And that's so, so important, um, which is interesting to me. So it's not just like putting a costume on the same actor. It's literally replacing the actor and by virtue of that changing what makes the scene or the mm-hmm. previous scene, that scene. Yeah, and and he sort of takes it deeper too with the with focusing on one pair of actors most of the time. So we talked about this before. I don't know if we said this explicitly yet, but you can see this film as like a tier of three uh, spiraling structures of like the reality of everyone in the park, the film crew filming the film crew, and then the film crew making the film, and then the film that's being made, right? Sure. But within that inner ring, that inner oak ring, that inner tree ring, is... The, the uh, oldest ring. The yeah, Elden the ring. ring. Oh, the Elden Ring. Oh, man, I can't wait for that game. It's never uh, coming. It's never coming out. But uh, within that inner Elden Ring, uh, he films one pair of actors for most of the film, and they have completely different experiences when they're acting out this scene. Two in particular... Um, I find interesting that I want to get your take on. Mm-hmm. There was one scene where he took him aside and was just like, try and be organic, try and get into it, uh, stop thinking, uh, stop acting. He literally said that verbatim and just go for it. And they had maybe the best take that they ever had. And then they ran out of film, so they couldn't even mm-hmm. like keep going. Yeah. And, yep. then, and then in another scene... The actors were like, I'm just going to try something. And like, I think it should be like this. And they have all of these ideas before they go into acting. Uh, and it sucked. <laughs> and it was awful. And, and the actress was so mad that she just like screamed and walked off set. Like, how did yeah. you feel about those contrasting moments? Well, I thought it was interesting. It was kind of nice to see because it showed that the actors at least were able to take directions and that they could change up their style based on the director. Also, was that the point where I, I, I think it was when uh, William Greaves took the took the main guy aside and was just like trying to give him directions and he kept making like joke after joke after joke and the guy was yeah. like, Hey, like stop stop quipping, you're quipping all the time, like Yeah. It's getting ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I love that moment. Yeah. And and even that is is interesting to see and it makes it different because you don't really get to see the directorial notes in many of the other takes or at least not that in depth i think that the contrasting scenes um with these actors these two very different but like equally powerful scenes kind of show the variability that uh even the inner ring of this film can can show like yes the outer rings are constantly changing with the crew running around and the pedestrians coming in but even this scene, the scene that does not really matter to yeah. the film in general, can be yeah. so powerful just depending on the ways that the actors are portraying them. I thought that was very cool. 
I completely agree. Um, I think that's like a core aspect of the film too. It feels like um, it feels like William Greaves is taking like a magic eight ball and like shaking it around and just seeing like what comes out every time, which is not how you're usually supposed to make a film. <laughs> you know what I mean? With all that variability. Yeah. Well, that that would be like if you if you literally wrote a film based on one of those like um, storyboard generating robots. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know... Which probably we, would be his style if he was still around to oh, yeah. use it. I'm, oh, God, I'm sure he Oof. would love that. Uh, and something that we haven't talked about, we've talked about a lot of about um, what is being filmed, but there's one technique of editing, actually, that I find incredibly interesting, which is where he splits the frame in two. We'll have these two squares in the frame divided by blackness, of different camera angles so you see yeah, like, yeah. on the left you see like the close-up of the woman's face and on the right you see like a medium shot of them acting and i kept thinking of myself during this film i'm like why don't people do this like this is so interesting like instead of just choosing one angle he's like oh look at both of these things and it shows you this like fractured portrait of this moment which i find like fascinating yeah um i do think that that's style of editing worked really well for this kind of film i agree that it would be kind of interesting to see in other films but i think that the style of film is kind of limiting on that i actually didn't think about that that's really interesting i never thought about that but you're um, right. but i i think you're right in that this is something that isn't used very frequently and is probably used best here because you do have these three sets of cameras that are rolling non-stop so you're not seeing footage at different times you are seeing the same time from different angles yeah and i think it's it's important to note how playful this film is too like um the when it splits into two different frames it almost feels like he's going like aha look at this look what i can do you know what i mean like this film could be taken so seriously and being like talking about deep theoretical film studies theory like you know ideas and you know things that would be in a very serious thesis or something like that like this film could definitely be transferred into like the most jargony dense film studies language and, uh, and i'm sure it has i'm sure it has all over the place but it's also incredibly fun like it's funny it's lighthearted. it's sort of playful like it has a great energy to it and i think that's sort of the sign of a of how complex this film is too that it could be taken in these completely different ways yeah and i think it's funny that such a playful film um has certain scenes in it such as um where like you have the film crew talking without without greaves um uh, where they're all kind of sitting in a in a circle discussing like what is this what is this even about what the heck's going on they don't know what <laughs> yeah. it's about um and then you have some of them who are spouting these really philosophical ideas about what this film means. And yeah. to me, it kind of came across as um, what I can only imagine a film studies uh, lecture is like. Yeah, um, the dark side it, of film studies. Is, is that accurate? <laughs> I'd say the the worst ones are are like that because one of the key aspects of those scenes is the the one guy with the mutton chops. We'll call him Mutton Chop Man mutton chop man who has all these very detailed in-depth ideas about the film and people keep asking him have you read the concept 
uh, that Greaves wrote before making the film, and he keeps saying no. I assume they're shooting over many days, and he never takes the time to read the concept. He always says, no, I haven't read the concept. But But he feels confident enough to mansplain what he thinks it's all about. Yeah, and I just like, oh, it really gets me, because we were talking about this a little bit before recording, but I feel like, for me, I have felt the last, like, two years to be the most satisfying sort of studies years because I've I've made it a priority to connect with like the artists themselves doing interviews and hearing their ideas and learning from their perspective which then enriches my own sort of takes on the film Mm -hmm. and it's that dialogue that I think it makes film studies worth it where you're like communicating the the vision of that artist from their mouth and then enhancing it with your analysis to me he does the dark side of film studies which is I don't give a shit (laughs) what the artist is saying I am going to tell you what I think about it which to me is like the darkness of film studies but i think that's that's sort of an important part of this film too is that i think this film is incredible to watch in a vacuum but also knowing about william greaves makes this really special to know how bold it is um for a black filmmaker in the late 60s and early 70s to making you know to be making a film like this it reminds me of something that um Colleen said about Chantal Ackerman in the last episode where she said um, that Ackerman is like claiming the space as hers mm-hmm. in an industry that um, uh, where she doesn't have as like, you know, as high regard as someone like Hitchcock or something like that, like a white male filmmaker. To me, like there's an interesting quote um, about symbiopsychotaxoplasm um, that it. I want to that I want to bring up because I think it's very important. Written by Amy Taubin in the liner notes of the Criterion Collection DVD. Uh, what she said was um, what is immediately striking about um, the film was that it did not directly engage race or racism although the fact that Grieve is both the film's director writer, producer, and its on-screen protagonist, the focus of almost every scene guaranteed that viewers regardless of race had to confront whatever racial stereotypes they held. Quite simply, in 1968 uh, there were at, at best a handful of African American directors working in television and no African American directors directing feature films for an African-American director to make a feature film, let alone one as experimental as a film you know, by Warhol or Godard, um, could not have been imagined if Greaves hadn't gone out and done it. So he is like true, true pioneer in this moment. Um, and you know, there are people like even his crew that like just don't get that because they're not trying to relate to his headspace, mm-hmm. you know? No, I definitely agree. I think both uh for what he was trying to accomplish and uh for who he was during the time period i think that he definitely was claiming that space for himself and making waves just by doing what he was doing um yeah i i think that that is definitely very powerful yeah william greaves is the bomb diggity so I think one of the things that we talked about in News From Home, which we can talk about here too, mm-hmm. is how the camera affects the people. Like, what were some of your favorite moments, T, of people reacting to the camera? Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, there were a lot. Uh, but I think some of my favorite had to be, like, all the kids who showed up in uh, one of the earlier scenes and they're all trying to, like, have their time in the spotlight and just be like, like, oh, film me, I'm going to be the next star. Uh, no, 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 film me, film me. And they're all, all doing this little bit. <laughs> and they're just like, we, well, I mean, it's fine, but, like, we can't have you in this actual scene. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah. um, and then also uh, a very large part of towards the end, um, uh, the drunk guy who lived in the bushes who was trying <laughs> to sell his watercolor paintings. That um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had in a hotel room somewhere in the town. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, it. They could have been anywhere, I suppose, but I thought it was very interesting that he was like, I couldn't afford rent, so I ended up in these bushes. Um, I was a painter. I had all these watercolor paintings. So I was like, oh, where are your paintings? Are they in the bush too? And he's like, no, they're at this hotel. And so in my mind, I was like, is he paying for a room for his paintings? Yeah. While he's living in the bushes? That dude, that dude was out of his mind. (laughs) Yeah. I, um... It de- hearing him talk definitely reminded me of these quote-unquote philosophical conversations with <laughs> with uh, with people at say three a.m. on a Saturday yeah. during college, um, and regrettably, probably some things that I said at three a.m. on a Saturday. Um, yeah. So who's to say how trustworthy they could be? Well, the guy on film he even says like I'm an alcoholic, so I'm pretty sure he's bombed in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that sounds about right. Uh, I am I am specifically talking to just in, incredibly inebriated conversations yeah. from college. Yeah. Uh, of course, after the age of 21. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's funny how the camera seems... You can almost like see it like a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when he points the camera at a group of people or when someone points a camera at a group of people, it's like they all light up. Like my favorite is with them. Um, the group of kids that are around the film and the camera sort of pans around. You can almost see their eyes like jump up as the lens lands on them. It's like this incredibly sort of powerful transformative moment just by the act of like pointing a film camera at a person. Well, sure. I mean, haven't you ever been to like a basketball or a baseball game and the jumbotron gets on a group of people and they all go wild? Yeah. It's like that. It's a very magical thing that, you know film cameras do and i think this film epitomizes that in a really nice way that's like this film is playful this film is very serious theoretically it's about very serious topics but it's also like the magic of the film camera is at the center of it as well which is very um hopeful and uh, heartening yeah i think that regardless of who you are you can interpret this film a number of different ways and i don't think yeah. that any one way is the correct way unless the director just went out and said it in which case listen to the director and stop trying to come up with your own bullshit opinions <laughs> this film is like a kaleidoscope so that's all the time we have on symbio psychotaxoplasm take one i just like saying it now that i got it down just say it four more times and you're golden <laughs> but next episode is actually going to be the old season finale of season one of Art House Drive-In, and it is going to be on uh, Faces from John Cassavetes, who, um, if people know me in the real world, I am a Cassavetes nutcase. Uh, yeah. And this is one of my favorite films of all time. And maybe the it's the first film I saw that really got me into this stuff, so I'm excited to end this amazing season with that. Yeah, and... I mean, we we have really enjoyed getting these episodes out for you guys, and honestly, the amount of support that we've already seen for this podcast is incredible. Um, and so that's why after this next episode, we are going to be taking a little bit of a break, not for super long, but just so we can really focus on making this next season 
even bigger and better for you guys. Um, so not to worry, won't be too long of a break. We got we got big plans. We got guests. We got bigger films, bigger, better than ever. It's louder be a mics. <laughs> You're gonna have to turn down your volumes for this one. Yeah, I'm very excited. We got. I mean, this this show could go on for eon. There's a million films that we could cover, uh, so it's fun times. Yeah, but uh, thanks for catching us again this week. Um, thanks again to Split Tooth uh, for uh, for giving us a place to talk. Uh, don't forget to watch all the other Split Tooth podcasts, uh, Synesthesia. Check out some of their articles and. You know, just uh, keep doing what you're doing. We love you guys. Keep it chill. You've been listening to a Split Tooth Media presentation. You can find us on Letterboxd as Arthouse Driving and on Twitter at Arthouse In. That's right, we can't change it. Feel free to join us in our little cars. We talk about films each week, give or take. Probably. <laughs>